Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Mastering Dungeons. I'm Sean Merwin here with my Spider-Man watching co-host Teos Avadia. Hey Teos. I am web slinging. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Which one of us is Yeah, I we're, watched we're, Into we're the Spider-Verse. Spider Man, that is a great, great, or not into it, it's a, Across the Spider-Verse, and uh, that is a fantastic movie, and I had so many thoughts as, uh, just from the RPG hobby, let alone cinema and, and things like that, but just, there are, th there are properties that somehow a team shows up and just knocks it out of the park, right? And then there are these properties that you're like, what has happened? Um, and specifically what I loved about Spider-Verse is that all the things in the previous movie that happened and involved choices and thoughts and like, you know, were an active thing are rewarded and important mm -hmm. in the sequel, which is exactly what you okay. want, yeah. whether you're dealing with an RPG, a movie, a novel, whatever, like you want to be rewarded for what came before right. instead of having those things that mattered and resonated suddenly trivialized. <laughs> I don't want to say things like <clears throat> Star Wars, but, uh, you, you know, like it's, it's just amazing to me whenever I watch a Star Wars film that they seem to not understand what about the Jedi appealed to people. <laughs> and, and that's right. yeah. And I had a million other thoughts, but Into the Spider-Verse is great. Uh, it's it's treated super well by by the folks who, who are in charge of that. And, uh, and I can't wait to see the, the thing I'd say. My son told me this is just sort of a spoiler, but I think it's like a necessary spoiler is. It ends on a cliffhanger to go like get ready for part two to this. And I think it's good to know because if you don't know that, like I felt better knowing that, knowing that this was going to end, you know, not with like a, and that's the end of our story. Okay. You know, I think it's helpful. I'm spoiling yeah, cool. that right now for everybody's benefit. Oh, well, do you heard it here? Maybe first, but actually that, that ties into our main discussion today, which we will do after our news and listener corner. Uh, talking about NPCs and chapter four of the DMG, of course, being about creating NPCs and dealing with NPCs. Yeah. And some of the things that you talk about with that movie, I think we will sort of get to maybe tangentially when we talk about what chapter four does for us as DMs and maybe what it doesn't do mm. uh, yeah. for us. So Fantastic. good, good lead in there. First, let's uh, go to our listener corner to hear from our listeners. Coming to us first via Mastodon is Pole Jack. So, adventure fiction gaming dominates the market, but it is only a small part of what tabletop RPGs are capable of. What games, if any, interest you outside of the adventure fiction genre and why? Examples, mystery like Brindlewood Bay, melodrama like Passione de la Passione, uh, Passiones, tragedy like Ten Candles, romance like Breaking the Ice and Hot Guys Making Out, children's literature like Yaziba's Bed and Breakfast, drama like Hill Folk, exploration like Ribbon Drive and The Quiet Year and Wonder Home. Um, and as a follow-up, what do you, do you think you'll ever cover such games on the show? Aside from briefly touching on the non-combat possibilities of fate, all the games you've discussed so far have been firmly in the adventure fiction genre, which makes sense given its popularity, but I also wonder if you any had any interest in branching out. So to, to answer the second one first, uh, 
the name of this podcast is Mastering Dungeons, and it's Mastering Dungeons for a reason. Uh, that said, I know I can speak for Teos when I say we love role-playing games of all shapes and sizes. I don't want to talk about a game, however, unless I've not just played it, but played it extensively enough that I understand the game behind the game, that I understand the nuances of it and can discuss it. And that's not the case right now. So do would we like to? Absolutely. When will that happen? When either you or I or the people we bring on uh, get to the point where we can talk about it intelligently. Now I've been I'm planning on going to more and more conventions as the, the year ends and then the new year begins. And when I do, I want to play these games. If I'm not running D D or or a similar, you know, adventure type game. Uh, I want to play these other games, but they're hard to find. Uh, if I try to go to Gen Con right now, unless I was sitting there hitting the the button as the event management system kicked on, I'm locked out of a lot of the games that I would have loved to try. So we're working on it. Yeah. Uh, it's just not easy to do. And I think we try to pick for the show games that we think the listener, who is really a D&D kind of listener, can easily apply to their game and make their game better. And sometimes games provide sort of similar things. So like Fiasco is a really neat experience, and I think everybody should try it. But it is almost as applicable to provide the advice that I could provide from Fiasco with things like relationships building uh, through something like Fate, right? And that's what made Fate like such a good choice is that right. it covers a lot of the tips that you might get out of other games as well. Um, and Pasión de las Pasiones, yeah. I'm currently reading. I like to keep it in my bedside as a my own just makes myself laugh when I go to bed and I see, you know, this hot <laughs> romance looking cover on there. But it is, uh, you know, an apocalypse yeah. world based game. And, and so it, 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 you know, it was easy to cover that through a, a lens of Dungeon World rather than a telenovela romance game. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I, I agreed, Sean, like, right, I want to play all the games and I want to have all the experiences and I need someone to run all these things for me <laughs> and I need more time in my life. But yeah, I mean, I, I do. And, and, and later um, there is a, an, another Mastodon post that Paul Jack made about, you know, comedy games, right? Things like Tune. And, and it's great. And I, and I think that is for anyone listening, like it is fantastic to try all these things because it, it does help you to understand how differences in writing and rules can change the experience that you have. And you can often apply that to any other game you're playing. But, but yeah, I think my main problem here is time. <laughs> yeah. And you know, I cover certain games in the class I teach. I cover uh, Fiasco and I cover mm -hmm. some of the smaller games, Lasers and Feelings and, mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, what was the the bear one? A honey feist. Yeah. Right. So th those sorts of games we could talk about, uh, but yeah. there's only so far we could go in tying that back to the D and D uh, theme that we sort of build ourselves up from. So yeah, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. Like I was looking at the uh, rules next... for Girl by Moonlight, which uh, Evil Hat is is uh, crowdfunding right now. And that's one of the, you know, like that sounds really interesting and I would love to check it out. And I'm thinking, when will I do so? <laughs> mm -hmm. 
when I before I started working full time for Ghostfire, uh, I worked with a group called Encoded Designs, mm -hmm. who many of the other members are more into those uh, different games like the ones mentioned than D and D. So I got to dip my toe into editing adventures or editing games that are built on those sort of mechanics and and it's great it's great fun and it's great learning uh, i just haven't been able to do that for the last two and a half years so it uh it yeah. makes it harder and maybe i'll mention real quickly because this is a topic i thought about bringing up for this episode but so i'll just mention really quickly that on rpg geek there is a thread that was mentioned on our discord about Gen Con, where uh, Bruce McGee yearly posts since 2013 the number of seats available at Gen Con for each RPG. And I actually made a table of mm -hmm. comparing all of the data and looking at it. And there were some really neat discussions we had around this because one of the things is there's a lot of games being added now and more support for various RPGs than there ever has been before across the years. And so it's really interesting to see just like how many opportunities you have to play. And I know that when I was going to Gen Con regularly, I would try to get in like a paranoia game and there would be like two tables running, you know, and now it's a lot better. Right. And, and same for a lot of these other uh, RPGs. That's not just the few big ones that have a ton of tables. There are a lot more seats that one can possibly get into. Now there are a lot more people, so you may still not score it, but there are a lot more opportunities to try different games. And and that's great. That's a really nice thing to see. Yep. Next, we have Dr. Nick via Patreon, who asks, I would love to hear the two of you talk about the differences in power and flexibility between martial and caster characters. You've discussed on past episodes how it's good to have variability in the simplicity of characters. How do you feel about differences in capability? Is it a problem? If we assume it's a problem, how would you fix it? That's a huge question. Uh, that's a lot of huge questions, actually, all, all in one. So let me pull out four specific words from this question. Power, flexibility, simplicity, and capability. So power and flexibility are, are two not the only lenses you can look at a role-playing game through, but good lenses to look at characters in a role-playing game, look at look at them through. So they, they can be two different things, power and flexibility. And flexibility can translate into power. And in fact, it often does translate mm -hmm. into power. So let's step all the way back and say something, sort of set the, the ground rules for this. At the end of the day, the point of the game of D&D, not the storytelling vehicle, but the, the game mechanics themselves are you reduce your enemy to zero hit points before they reduce you to zero hit points. Is there more to the game than that? Absolutely. But at, at its base, the game that we open a book and read, that's what it does. If you can do that, you win. If you fail to do that, you lose. So what is power in, in a game? One way to define it is the ability to reduce enemies to zero hit points or stop your enemies from reducing you to zero hit points. That's power. If you can do those things in whatever combination, you'll have a powerful character. Flexibility is having the resources at hand for your character 
to have different ways to do that. Because sometimes the way you would normally reduce your enemy to zero hit points by hitting it with spells and they fail their saving throws are not available to you because they automatically make their saving throws or they automatically uh, don't take damage from magic or whatever you have. So then you need the flexibility to be able to have power in a different way. Yeah. So, you know, the, the those are ways that you can look at the game just as a caster by definition, you have spells and, and that adds flexibility to your character generally by default. So if you're inherently more flexible, you have more power. Thoughts? Yeah. So there are games where essentially your spell casting is I do ball of fire with X damage, right? And, and that's what it is. And it's not a lot of text. Uh, I impede you. I subtract dice from your pool. And that's what my spell does, right? It's a debuff, but it's a very simple debuff. And it's really interesting. I was looking at some older editions uh, last week and thinking to myself how often a spell really had this wide ranging. And it came because I was looking at concentration. And I was thinking about how concentration really caps what an enemy can do to you. That and, and you can do to an enemy, but especially what an enemy can do to you, where like, yeah, maybe the enemy can cast Globe of Invulnerability, but they can't also layer on all these other protections. It's sort of the only protection they get to do. And if they get hit, they might lose it and have to spend a whole round trying to protect themselves again. And that is so different than the earlier game that gave these swinging wild capabilities, but made it so you were really bad at dealing damage as a caster. So you needed those numb skulls who would come in with the hammers and the axes and the blades and really tear into them. And that was the weird way that the game had to work. And it was really around third edition that the spellcaster suddenly dealt massive damage too, not with the one fireball they had in a day, but with continued numbers of options, summoning monsters or dealing their own damage or whatever. And suddenly they were forces too. And in fact, too strong, right? Like really too strong because all the abilities they had, even at mid levels, but especially at high levels. And the game was almost an on off switch of wild spikes between spell casting sides with then the constancy of the damage output of, of the, the melee characters. Fourth edition changed all of that, right? It said, attacking with your weapon you know your storm of blades or your uh, wild arc of your axe is just like the fan of flames coming out of your you know your hands and, and all that sort of stuff and some people really complained right because it was suddenly really um similar to to compare those right when you break it down it, it was a lot more like those rpgs that say it's a fireball it's a debuff ball it's a whatever and and that's the hard part, right, is that you want the game and the audience wants these things to feel different. But that means that spellcasting is this giant complex beast that's problematic. <laughs> and we can see how 5th edition struggles with that. It right, tries to create concentration, but that is its own problem. I mean, if 5th edition, if, if 2024 were to say, we're going to get rid of concentration, I would say, great, that's a totally viable thing to do but you're going to have to do a bunch of other things to then make it work. Right. Because it is 
this problem. <laughs> and any number of other things could be done to try to address this. But it's one of those things that when you mess with it, everything else has to be messed with too, because it's it's such a problem. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah. So, yeah. So. I mean, and you know, we could, yeah, we we could we could talk about all different sorts of things in here, and th this doesn't even get to the simplicity issue, right? Yeah. The simplicity issue that we're talking about is there are some players that want that are more than happy to give up flexibility, mm -hmm. but they don't want to give up power. Yeah. They don't want to be contribute less to the game because the character that they play is simple. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, what we're talking about when we say, you know, we want complex martial characters. We want simple martial characters. Mm -hmm. We want complex casting characters. We also want simple casting mm -hmm. characters. We want people to say, I want to play Gandalf. Right. But I don't want to have to read through 50 spells and make these choices both while I'm creating the character and at the table. Mm -hmm. I want to cast my bolt of fire or my cone of cold. Yeah. And th that's the choice I, I make rather than yeah. you know, I think trying to you, think too deeply. Fifth edition is very clear in what it tried to do at the outset, right? You can look at the champion fighter. And it's so clear how it's trying to be a very simple, not muck it up, not add lots of functionality. You know, when you roll a certain number, you crit. And it deals huge amounts of damage. And that's the fun of it. You know, and, and that's what they're trying to do. Yeah. It. And the sorcerer was also about a, you know, you only get but so many spells and you do them a bunch. And it was a little more complicated in third edition, which third edition was really quite, you know, fine-tuned it even further. And now we're we're changing that. And so the dynamic of all of it starts to change when the simplest builds are actually fairly complex. Uh, and is that where the game is headed? I don't think it is. So so that's why we end up talking about in the show, right? It's because when you see the audience is actually moving primarily towards a more open, more narrative style. But the game seems to be giving you more crunch. And that's a, a bit of a disconnect that, that you have to watch. For sure. So I hope that sort of partially uh, answers <laughs> that question. And I'm sure as we look at more previews and play tests of the upcoming 2024 game, we'll have more to say about that as well. But we can now get on to our news and our commentary where we will start with drive through and roll 20 having some news for us uh, earlier this year, roll 20, allow DMs Guild creators to sell their D20 versions. And starting in June, DriveThru will be doing the same. You'll be able to sell a product on DriveThru and also sell the Roll20 version so you can bundle them together or sell those options separately. Uh, what, what, do you, what do you think about that? Yeah, it's neat. Like I've been noticing um, the Dragonlance Adventures League adventures that are really quite good. I got to play them at Winter Fantasy. Um, they have a bundle, right? And, and, and there's a link in our show notes. You can check it out where you have on one page the ability to buy the DM's Guild version and the Roll20 version all in one if you want it for slightly more. Or you can buy just the one, right? Depending on which platform you're on. And so you get that nice choice of bundling it together and getting both versions if you're going to run it online. 
so now you can do that no matter what where you're publishing. It doesn't have to just be the DMs Guild. It can be any OBS site. And now you can do the same thing. And that's good news for creators who want to have that expansion into the Roll20 side and, and where your product seems like it would work well. Though, you know, we covered in our interview um, where we interviewed the Roll20 folks, it is hard as a creator to make your money back on the time it would take or that it does take to create a really great Roll20 version of, say, an adventure. And, and so that is, I think, the biggest impediment. You now have the ability to do this. Will you profit from it is a good question, right? I think if you are very good already at creating things in Roll20, then that may be the case. Uh, but hiring someone is often expensive, you know. So it, it's, a, it's a tough piece that I hope over time they'll make it easier to create your Roll20 version, and then it will really sing. Yeah, we had this issue with Fantasy Grounds and the DMs Guild earlier uh you know in in the career of dm skilled and the lifespan of dm skilled because everyone kept once they allowed it everyone kept asking oh is there going to be a fantasy grounds version are you going to make a fantasy grounds version and they sort the question was asked not with not with the is it worth it for you it's we demand it <laughs> and you you are an idiot if you don't put it up sure. And so uh, I did a few, I hired someone to create the, the world 20 version or the, uh, fantasy grounds. the fantasy grounds version, but I couldn't sell it separately. It had to just, and you couldn't charge more. Mm -hmm. It just had to be added. So there was no way to determine if people were buying it yeah. for fantasy grounds or for the PDF. And so you're paying a lot to get it done then you don't know if you're getting your money back on that. <laughs> Plus uh, the DMs guild and wizards is still getting their 50%. cut. So yeah. even if somebody is, but was buying it for fantasy grounds, you are the one paying the person to do it. And wizards of the yeah. coast and uh, they are getting their normal percentages. Yeah. So uh, it didn't make much sense. This at least allows you as the creator to, to move things around and get a better idea of if, if you are getting your money back on, on making this worth, uh, worth definitely while. great for roll 20, because I think roll 20, it's a good way for them to, to tout their marketplace and, and add more to the marketplace, encourage more people to be on that marketplace and develop those skills. But I want to see more from the infrastructure support side to make it cheaper, easier to create this. Um, yeah. Yep. I, uh, I got a chance to play on roll 20 again with my high school group who has started playing once every couple weeks and I'm not DMing I'm playing, but, uh, even the people that, uh, stopped playing with AD and D are now playing again. And with roll 20s help, we were busting through the sunless citadel really oh, quickly. Awesome. Uh, it was going real fast. Every everybody was happy. We could see it. Uh, it was great. It just shows how important these virtual tabletops have been to the rebirth uh, of yeah. of the gaming craze. Sure. We also have news on D and D pride shirts and hoodies. The Magic the Gathering Pro Shop has now been updated with uh, Magic the Gathering and D and D gear themed for Pride Month. 
with all the profits going to the Trevor Project, aiming to end suicide among LGBTQ plus young people. So you can check that out at magicthegatheringproshop.com slash pride. Tell us about Sharkadia. Yeah, you know, uh, I'm a little behind on this because issue 28 of Arcadia just came out by MCDM, uh, which is the penultimate episode. And issue 28 is fantastic. Issue 27 is really very special called Sharkadia instead of Arcadia. And it gives you all kinds of stuff that's nautical and sharky themed. You have an amazing campaign adventure by Willia Beale, who is just such a good designer. Uh, bolstered by really cool shark monsters that James Intracasso himself wrote, and then Rules and Monsters by Gwendolyn Marshall. And it is really good. And if you're at all curious about that, um, covering it in way more depth than we could is Jared Rasher, who brings, dare I say, fathoms of depth, Sean, to uh, the term in depth. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we've linked in the show notes to his uh, article on whatdoiknowjr.com where he reviews all about what this contains. And it's, it's very good. It is a fantastic issue. Really cool. Like you read this issue and you're just like, great. I want to run a campaign off of these things. And I could run a campaign based on these yeah. things. Highly recommended. Yeah. Arcadia. Yeah. Arcadia. Great. This issue. Great as well. Um, and just uh, Jared Rasher, if you haven't read his reviews, if you want to he see a review of something before you buy it, mm -hmm. uh, Jared is one of the most in-depth uh, reviewers out there. His reviews are are great as well. Yep. We also hear from DM David on the astral and the ethereal. This is a look at the history of these two planes, pop culture references and influences from each, how they are often can be or are used interchangeably, uh, and how they have slowly differentiated over the editions. It also looks at why they may still be redundant and uh, DM David proposes changes to help them become easier to use during play. Yeah, it's great. If you, if you enjoyed when we talked about the astral and ethereal as part of the DMG review a few episodes ago, you know, he, he talks about like, you know, why did these things show up? And it has to do with things like Dr. Strange talking about the astral or, uh, you know, the, the sort of 70s new age movement and, and, and just this, but, but there wasn't a lot to them. And then over time, rather than remove one of them, they start trying to explain why there are two different versions and, and what, what their differences are, um, which often end up not having much play because you just transport yourself to the actual plane you're going to, rather than maybe going through one of these. Um, so it's really a great analysis. He does such good historical breakdowns of, of how everything comes together and what the influences were and, and then what to do with that. I, lo I love this article. Vintage DM David. <laughs> there you go. And several crowdfunding or real interesting releases have come up since the last time we were able to get down deep into them. Uh, the first, of course, being Cobalt Press and Tales of the Valiant role-playing game. I think it did well over half a million on the first day. And they've got to be approaching a million by now. And by the end of it, I would be very surprised if they weren't closer to two million than the one million. Uh, for me, this is a very, very, very smart business decision. Uh, 
they can capitalize on the hate that Wizards has been getting. Um, they can get out ahead of the unknown of what 2024 is going to bring, whether what Wizards does is going to be loved or hated, whether it's going to be accepted or rejected, whether it's going to be very close to current 5e or very different from current 5e. Uh, so to get out ahead of all that unknown with something that people can put their finger on and say, well, at least we know what this is, uh, is a brilliant business move. So congratulations on a very successful Kickstarter so far. And will, will of course be a very successful Kickstarter when it ends. Got nothing to add to that. <laughs> I, I'm very happy for <laughs> you them. You have too much to add to that. Yeah. I'm very happy for them. <laughs> I, uh, I, you know, I struggle with how many, there's so many thoughts in my mind about how many, uh, versions of D&D that are very much like D&D but slightly different there are and and I'm I'm very curious to see kind of where these go long term uh, I have no doubt that some of them can you know crowdfund in enormous uh, values and, and that's great uh, for those companies they deserve it but I don't know where it'll it'll end up I'm very curious I'm shocked even I, mean, I just I guess I'm historically shocked by how much outrage there is and remains around D&D. Not that it's not deserved, but I don't see this as being fundamentally different than things that Wizards has done before. Um, so I guess maybe I'm, I have too many scabs and then <laughs> dead into it, uh, but I'm surprised that, yeah. that, you know, like the conversations I hear, wherever I go, it can be, you know, a poll on Reddit, it can be on Twitter, if I go there, it can be a Mastodon, it can be, discord channels like folks are really questioning how tied they want to be to to D, D. it's it's really fascinating to see and so i'm i'm very curious where they go i think cobalt press has done a pretty good job of not being too hard on exploiting the anger you know they, they they're doing what they're doing and they're clearly helped by it but they're not fomenting it which i appreciate um oh yeah 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 yeah, you know, it's 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 reasonable and that hasn't been the case with companies in the past, you know, where they've really tried to push it, you know, and make it actually fan the flames, build the fire. Um sure. So, so I appreciate that they haven't done that. Um and and also I think the one last thing is something that, you know, I even mentioned when I was at the D&D summit to to the folks, to the D&D folks there, which is that it is something to see the companies that are in theory the biggest and we'll talk about this for more further, but the biggest partners, your biggest partners are breaking away. Mm -hmm. And that is something that I think wizards should pay close attention to, right? Like if, if any of us saw our friends just mm -hmm. go off and do things that aren't really in our interest, well, maybe we weren't treating them well. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, and you know, part of this, Part of the brilliance of this move is they can, they being Cobalt Press, can make their $2 million on this one thing. And if it turns out that the pendulum swings as it generally does and people forget, you know, all the things that Wizards has done and 5, 5E, 2E uh, becomes a huge success, Cobalt Press can just go, well, okay. Uh, mm -hmm. everything that we make is compatible with that. 
So here you go. Mm -hmm. uh, and they don't lose anything in the translation. So it's I don't see it as being dangerous at all um, to yeah. to their overall business. So yeah. yeah. We we also have some new content from Evil Hat, as Teos mentioned earlier. Girl by Moonlight. Uh, it, Girl by Moonlight explores the heartbreak of denying who you really are, fighting for what you believe in and the transcendent power of building relationships while embracing your true self. So what do you think of this RPG that you took a quick look at? Yeah, it's really cool. It, it uses the concept of a magical girl as a sort of shorthand, but you don't have to be a girl to be a magical girl necessarily. Um, and it's really around people whose identities put them at the margins of society. And everything about the game, and there's a free 50-page preview available. It's really worth checking out uh, just to even look at the design ideas in it, let alone get uh, excited for the actual product that you can back. Um, it, it, uh, it, it, it is all about this theme, right, of the idea of, like, what, who are you? What is it that you are dealing with in your everyday life? And how do you take action to resolve it? And then coming together as a group to do those things and... and deal with the issues that you're up against which is really cool right perfect like this is the kind of game i'd like to just you know hand out free at every high school right <laughs> like um mm -hmm. and it's only 15 dollars in pdf 30 dollars bundled with roll 20 30 dollars for hardcover plus pdf so it is really uh affordable uh excellent to check out uh from mcdm speaking of arcadia we now get a new version of the ill rigor for playtesting this is a hell-inspired character class that has been revised by Mario Ortegon and uh, Sadie Lowry. Yeah. You can get that at uh, mcdmproductions.com. I did not get a chance to look at it yet, but it is on one of my browser tabs, and I'm excited to dig into it, especially because I love the work that Mario and Sadie do. So, Yeah. Yep. And the last bit of news that we didn't get to last week but was pretty... Uh, pretty well talked about was the critical role in Darrington press release of the game Candela Obscura. A free preview PDF is made available and they did a new stream using the system to show the actual play of the game. When people began to read it and see it, they, there were many, many comments online about it being very reminiscent i.e. are we playing the same game as Blades in the Dark? And the response was for uh, Darrington Press to re-release the free PDF with another page that gave a nod to not just Blades in the Dark, but some other sources that it took inspiration from. What it did not include, this free PDF, was the two sentences that you needed to put to be a licensed uh you know subproduct if you will of blades in the dark a a licensed version of those rules now will they add it to the final book mm -hmm. maybe maybe not we don't know yet but if they don't that then becomes an interesting question of how much like a game 
does another game need to be to raise some eyebrows yeah. if they don't use the the licensing that's freely available to do that and people are very kind to critical role which is i mean deserved right but but there's there's something to be said for the the space that is occupied by an entity you as a small creator can't just say like hey man you stole my system right or, or what are you gonna you know what's up with this um and and they clearly the communications critical role and matt mercer saying that they're they're in talk with john harper who created blades in the dark and that he's working to do something with them and that's all good but it's like wow you made a rpg that is sort of your first no not sort of it's the first rpg you're releasing to the public to say hey look we can do rpgs as well and it's like another game like i wonder if that was really like I'm curious whether everybody at Critical Role really understood that the game had these similarities or if that was just in the person that they're paying to write it for them. I, because if Wizards did this, people would be lighting the whole place on fire, right? Um, mm -hmm. yeah. Even if the creator said, you know, no, it's fine and I'm okay with it as they're doing in this case. Um, so there's a bit of a double standard here with Critical Role getting a pass and 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 really interesting legal ground right where you can you are choosing to release something that could make a lot of money that uses an approach in another system to this extent i'm i'm very interested to see how this plays out over time yeah i mean i i'm fine with it because legally there's a license there that you can use and the, they're the not using it doesn't say you have to pay <laughs> Well, exactly. That that's the thing. And to to use it, you just have to add two sentences to to yeah. your to your book that that says this is made under this license. And so I just assumed that in the final version that they would do that. Um, I didn't see the original version without the attributions. I just saw it yeah, say, you know, we 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 took this from from these people. We we uh, we recognize this. We're talking with them. They're okay with it. And then I saw tweets that basically said the same thing. So I just was like, I didn't even know that there there was. Now, if they put out a final version and don't at least put those two sentences in, then I'm like, yeah, you're taking someone else's game. Yeah, and, and, and what would then, happen if I were to launch I, an I RPG that uses Candela Obscura in some way, right? Like. I don't think mm -hmm. that's okay. <laughs> and I know people will say like, oh, you can't yeah. copyright mechanics and so on. But uh, I mean, yeah, to an extent, but I just, I would like to see our, our hobby operate in a better way of, of if you're going to use something that's in another game, talk to those people, right? They did that work. Yep. Yep. And uh, in our show notes, you can see links to both the quick start rules that were released for free and the actual play game using those rules. And we will keep an eye on this for uh, reactions and how well the game plays and what people think of it when it is finally fully released. And that's it for our news. Now this week, here on the show that you love, Mastering Dungeons, we are going to talk for our main segment about chapter four of the 2014 
Dungeon Master's Guide. This is all about NPCs. Uh, last week, we finished covering Chapter 3, which was about building encounters and adventures. Now we're going to look at what we put into those adventures to keep the players occupied, to keep them entertained. And one of those things are non-player characters. What does the chapter tell us about non-player characters? A non-player character is any character controlled by the Dungeon Master. NPCs can be enemies or allies, regular folk or named monsters. They include the local innkeeper, the old wizard who lives in the tower on the outskirts of town, the death knight out to destroy the kingdom, and the dragon counting gold in its cavernous lair. This chapter shows you how to flesh out non-player characters in your game. Why does it have to be an old wizard? In the tower? <laughs> Always is, right? Why can't it yeah. be a young sprightly? I, I'm, yeah, I'm being called it takes out so long there. to study. Yeah, it's true. It's true. So <laughs> what this introduction fails to mention, and not just fail to mention here, but fail to mention throughout the chapter, is that NPCs are really tools. And why do we have these tools? These tools are there for a, a dungeon master to insert themselves into a game, sometimes necessarily, and sometimes elegantly, in not just the game, not just the mechanics, but also the story. It's a it's a good hallmark for a complex role-playing game like D&D for the DM to be able to control things without using a very heavy hand. Mm -hmm. And this needs this is that needs to be the next part of this. Why why? Why do you have these NPCs at your disposal? What can you do with them? Why is it good to be able to have somebody with the party while they're adventuring that you have input into. Um, yeah. it, it really doesn't say that. And Sean, I think I have an idea for the why, uh, why this does this. And it's because this is what we've always done. So like I was looking at, you know, the good old two E and you know, mm -hmm. this, this page is like lists of occupations of possible NPC mm -hmm. professions, right? The sauce maker, the glazier who cuts and sets mm -hmm. glass. Like it's it's trying to fit in like little insertions into the game of things that must be there. And in fact, if you go earlier than the second edition DMG, while there are professions listed, a lot of it and, and, and the write-up even in the third edition tends to be focused on the idea of like when characters need the sage, there should be a sage NPC. And the rest is just like, whatever, like just, you know, if you have to be the shopkeeper, well, be the shopkeeper. I'm not going to address this at all. And fourth edition actually looks a lot like fifth edition. It's got, you know, the same tables we're going to look at. It's got the same kind of charts and, and concepts, like a lot of this, this idea of like allies, all this, it all comes from, from fourth edition. And so it's almost like every person creating a DMG just takes what's come before, does very minor tweaks to it, and we end up in the same place, right? While meanwhile, the way we play the game is evolving massively. There's huge differences in how we look at the use of NPCs between 
first edition, second edition, third edition, and now, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it used to be, right, for AD&D, it was you go, you get the quest. Sometimes you don't even role play it out. You are just told there's this dungeon. You start the adventure, you're on your way to the dungeon that you heard about from someone, <laughs> whether it's a shopkeeper or a merchant or the king or the queen or whomever. And so that's what, and then you, you complete the dungeon. Maybe you have some hirelings who carry things around for you, but maybe not. Mm -hmm. And you, then you go back to town and you sell your stuff, but we're not going to role play it. We're just, you know, and with the advent of streamed games and the talent of the people running those games, we start to see the memorable video game RPG character make its appearance in our role-playing tabletop role-playing game uh, RPGs. And it has been a huge change. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and but also, you know, just people running great campaigns where it matters what your relationship is with the, as a player with these NPCs and learning their secrets and interacting with them is great. Or even just the throwaway ones where you play, you know, you play at a table with the DM that just creates interesting characters that they're making up right then and there. And you as a DM realize like, Oh, when my uh, players suddenly decide that they need to find a uh, place that sells glass bottles, whatever they come up with. And you're like, uh, sure. Okay. Yeah. There's a glass blower around here and you invent the glass blower and their shop and whoever else works there. And you have to make those interesting. And what's, Fascinating to me about this, the 5e, you know, as far as we've gotten into, here we are in 2014 creating this, and it doesn't really help me do any of that. It doesn't help me improvise. It doesn't, like you said, it doesn't say, here's the role of NPCs. Here's how they're your voice, right? Like often when I've written adventures for organized play or large events, I will specifically say, this NPC can be your voice to guard the, guide the characters, right? If they start going off kilter, this NPC knows what needs to be done and can stay on goal, right? Um, mm -hmm. And none of that is in, in the 5e DMG. There are some neat things in there that I enjoy and I think are good ideas, a little heavy-handed, but we, you know, we'll go into the details. But but it does not have as an approach what, what you're talking about or what I'm talking about. Yeah. So, so one of the things that it it sort of tries to do is just give you ideas give you ideas yeah. for how to create an npc quickly lots and lots of tables uh which are great ways to eat up page count um even if they're not necessarily something that you as a dm need because you've already been through the ringer since you know the the 70s on creating npcs on the fly so what I wanted to look at was in fiction writing, you hear a lot of people talk about methods of characterization. If you read how-to books, you'll get 10 steps for creating a character, two steps for creating a character, five steps for creating a character. And you get all these different numbers. Huh. Uh, like if it says two, 
it's usually either direct or indirect characterization. You're either told or you can infer what the character's mm-hmm. like. 10 will be like subcategories of uh, of different categories. But I like to bring, break it down to four when I teach. It's a description. What mm-hmm. does this character look like as told to me by the narrator or other characters? You can characterize through action. What does the character do? Mm-hmm. What does it look like when they do it? Why do they do it? How do they do it? Dialogue. What does the character say? How do they say it? Why do they say it? And then their thoughts, their inner dialogue. What do they think? Why do they think? How does what they think conflict with what they say or how they act or how they're described? Um, You'll also get things like character's name can be important in their characterization. How the character judges others. Those can be broken out as separate, but they really all fit into those categories. Description, action, dialogue, and thought. So as we talk about what this uh, DMG chapter discusses, we can go back and we can look at how what this chapter is really doing is just giving you ways to characterize these NPCs uh, rather than how to actually use them. So you want to take take us through the first little part here of designing NPCs? Yeah, so it it says, Nothing brings your adventures and campaigns to life better than a cast of well-developed NPCs. That said, NPCs in your game rarely need as much complexity as a well-crafted character in a novel or movie. Most NPCs are bit players in the campaign, whereas the adventurers are the stars. So, yeah, it's great. Like, for sure, don't forget that it's, it's, you know, the story of of your, uh, of your, your players that are there. But it doesn't really give you the, the tips that I think are important. Like, for example, when I think of the, the players being the feature, you know, avoid having two NPCs talk to each other. Especially for any great amount of time, right? Like, those are the kind of things that's easy to forget, right? So be, beware putting too many NPCs in a scene, because that will happen. Yep. Uh, beware that the NPC has to have an exceedingly long amount of information to give out to the characters, right? Let the characters find that in different ways instead of doing that. Um, none of these kinds of tips are, are, are here. And, and instead it just says, you know, okay, let's, let's look at how to craft them. Right. Anything else you want to say to this? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What it what I mean, I agree that the NPCs don't need the complexity of a well-crafted character in a novel or movie. But what it needs to say is you need to craft it mm. exactly to fit their purpose in your game, in your adventure. If you need mm-hmm. the, a character to have a trait that will become important in the story, that they have that trait, make sure they have that trait. A character who is going to be a clue in a mystery needs to only have the trait that will tell them, tell the players what that clue is. And the, it's the word well-crafted drives me a little bit, uh, gives me a little bit of a twinge because you can well-craft something not necessarily complex, but the simplicity of the craft does what it needs to do. Now, That's if really... you want to then, yeah. 
I love what you're saying. That, that's, that's a great way to, to crystallize it, that, that looking at the function your MPC has to play and then design accordingly is really what you, what you want. And, and nothing here is telling you to do that because your NPCs have roles to play. Even if you're improvising them on the spot, right, then, well, then they're filling that need that the, they are fulfilling the need the characters expressed, right? I need a glass blower. Well, here they are, right? And so they must do that. But if you're creating them ahead of time, then you want to know what is the function they play and you want to execute on that. And, and none of what's in here, which is, you know, somewhat playing off of what was in fourth edition, really helps you do that. And, and part of it is I think they're so wedded to their ideals and so on. And we'll talk about all this stuff, but that they don't know how they, they give you too many uh, characteristics because they're trying to make it work. But none of this also addresses the issue of how do I properly role play an NPC? You know, how do I create a likable NPC? Um, how do I create a uh, NPC they will hate? Right? Um, none of that is is there. That and in some and, and so that's the problem when you give real concrete, detailed rules as they sort of do here, right? With lots of tables, lots of steps, it makes you think that somehow this is a great NPC, and it need not be. Mm-hmm. Um, and a different approach would be more effective, right? And so if I think of like when we talked about fate, we talked about how you take the major NPCs that are involved and you create their aspects. And aspects are pretty flexible and pretty open, right? They're, they're concepts. They're high concepts around these entities such that you can easily play off of them. And I find that a much better system than, than this, right? Or... um return of the lazy dungeon master mike shea has a section on npcs and you know he gives you this is such a different approach right he says when you're creating an npc think of a cool character in a movie right it can be belloc from raiders of the lost ark or it can be carson from downton abbey something you know well and now change it up like switch the gender or change their accent or do something else that that makes them into a different character and use that. And it's like, that's brilliant, right? That is a brilliant way to do something, right? Think of a thing, a person, an entity, an NPC you already understand from some fiction, change it up so it isn't super recognizable and you're there, right? Like, that's smart. <laughs> or, or make it super recognizable if that serves the purpose that you want the yeah. character yeah. to, to serve in, in the adventure. Um, yeah, and so we we get a a section on quick NPCs versus detailed NPCs, and the book suggests for a quick NPC a trait or two, a trait or two that will make them memorable to the players. And my thing is, okay, do you want them to be memorable to the players? If every character that they come across is memorable, then none of them are memorable. Mm. Uh, if 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 done in too great a number, mm-hmm. you want them to be memorable for a reason that serves the purpose for the adventure. You want the thief to be that they catch pickpocketing to be memorable when they need to find out more information about the thieves guild to which this thief belongs. Mm-hmm. So. 
that character then becomes memorable for their ineptitude, <laughs> but their connection to the the thieves guild. Then, if you're going to make a detailed NPC, they say you want to answer these ten questions mm. with ten sentences, each sentence discussing a particular trait. From this list, occupation and history, appearance, abilities, talent, mannerism, interactions with others, useful knowledge, ideals, bonds, flaws, or secrets. And I'm just like, whoa, slow down there, cowboy. <laughs> that's, a, that's a lot to create. A, yeah. Even the most detailed NPC I can imagine in, in a game I don't want all of those things. I'm not going to use all of those things. That's yeah. a lot of effort. Yeah. And, and I think that this is a nice list of possible ways you can flesh out an NPC. And that's what I like this section for, mm-hmm. right? Like to think through like, what kind of things can I do to make their appearance stand out? Oh, here's a table of 20 things. You know, they have braided beard or hair. Okay, yeah, that could be a fun thing I could choose. Or unusual hair color. You know, uh, nervous eye twitch. Like, that's not a bad thing that when I want to think about their appearance, I could go to this list. Um, the idea that they have a high and a low ability. Oh, that's neat. You know, if I want to, for some NPCs, ha- reinforcing that in a way that the players will understand, oh, they're not very dexterous, right? You know, that can be helpful. Uh, their talent, they're great with animals, you know, whatever. Okay, you know, yeah, not a bad thing. But you don't want to do this for every single NPC you have, right? We, <laughs> and, and, I mean, first, and, and what they try to say is that you're going to have 10 sentences, These should, which I think is their way of trying to say to keep it short. But 10 sentences is a lot on a page of your notes in an encounter. And by the way, there isn't a single D&D adventure that gives you this approach, right? No 5e published adventure has a list of NPCs with 10 lines under it. <laughs> so they don't do this. No. And no freelancer and their employees doing this. And, and no one should really. Because it, and, and, and this goes, it's, it feeds off of what the player's handbook did. You know, we talked about this with the bonds and the ideals and everything. And, and then these indeed have also ideals and bonds. It's too much. And even for characters that have like four things to remember, the DM can't remember them. The players can't remember about each other. And they're the stars. So when you add all this stuff to NPCs, there's no way anyone's remembering this stuff. And it's an inflexible system. You as DM trying to remember the difference between their ideal and their bond to use it isn't a great system a far better system is you know like what mike's saying with you know choose to make it like jane urso and rogue one you know that's the that's the npc and play off of that right it's andor uh it's it's whoever you know choose someone play off that or something like fate says where you say they have these three kinds of aspects about them right quick to be quickly easily irritated um uh dedicated to the captain's watch uh and you know something you just three things like that and and you just riff off of that Mm -hmm. and that'll be far better than some 10 lines you're going to try to read yeah (laughs) yeah it and and it it really does go back to before you look at this list of 10 things which doesn't include name by the way Mm -hmm. which is probably the hardest thing 
to to do. Uh, <laughs> before you look at this list again, ask yourself what is the purpose of this NPC? Is this NPC just there to sell glass vials? Then all mm -hmm. you need is an occupation and an appearance. Mm -hmm. um, is this character? Is this non-player character going to? Is there going to be a twist? Yeah. Well, then maybe you do need to know the bond that this character has is with their partner who uh, is ill. Now, since mm -hmm. this bond is there with this partner being ill, that gives you a, uh, a way to make the character sympathetic to the characters, B, a way to give, give uh, another twist to the story. Since this glass glazier's a significant other is ill, the enemies of the PCs might be able to bribe the glazier into putting poison in the vials. So when the characters pour the holy water or the poison or um, their potions in, yeah. that poison rubs off. All right. Mm -hmm. So now that's now you want to look for a reason why they would do that. So you go to, okay, do I want them to be sympathetic? I'll give them the, this bond. Maybe their flaw is greed. Maybe they're doing it for money. Okay, right. there's their flaw. It, it needs to fit the the story. It needs to fit the game. And yeah. all the other things, yeah. And that's something that this doesn't address is, you know, what's even the point of all these things? It doesn't actually tell you why you really need these things. And the reason you want to have these things exist is, is kind of two parts. On the one hand, you want to be able to remember this NPC to portray them in an interesting way and in a way that you'll remember across sessions if for some reason they come back to the glass blower that you remember what you did with them, right? So, and, and that's another reason why, you know, if they say suddenly we're going to the glass blower, you can't write 10 things down while being a glass blower. You can scroll down an aspect, right? motivated by greed yes boom done you just scrawl that mm -hmm. while still looking forward at the characters you scrawl that down and their name <laughs> and now you can remember that's a thing you can yeah. work off of right the second thing is that you is that whole speaking to their your voice in the game right and so any npc is an opportunity for you to reinforce all the themes in the adventure in the setting in the world so the glass blower can be complaining about the taxes or about the despotic rule or or afraid to speak to it right you know afraid that they're heroes because of what that entails whatever it is they those little things reinforce and so the story of something like their ill uh family member is also an opportunity to speak to what that means in the larger society and create that that kind of realism right and 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 the yeah it it, it is you say things that you couldn't otherwise say in passing about the setting through them. And again, none of that's here and, and nothing tells you how to facilitate that in the world. But those are things that when you're playing with a great DM, they do these things for you. And the world is constantly building around you through all the things they're saying, both descriptions and NPC words. And yeah, that's one of my favorite parts of the game. <laughs> yeah. And, and another thing on that is the stories that you are telling with your players are works in progress. If you sit and you write down 10 things about an NPC and try to get all of those into the game, you lose the ability to then 
modify that later to fit a piece of the story. Mm -hmm. You want the characters to go to the cave with the troll, but they keep missing that information. Oh, now I'm going to use this glassblower NPC. Uh, Their bond is they have a sibling who's an adventurer. Oh, that adventurer went to the troll cave and hasn't come back yet. If you make, if you write down something, the first time they meet the glass blower and say, Oh no, this glass blower is not, you know, doesn't have a partner and is a, an only child. Then you remove yourself from the ability to change that later. So mm-hmm. the less information you give sometimes the better that you can later manipulate to fit the story exactly the way you need it to. And one last thing I'd say is that NPCs often there's, there's a skill to figuring out, how your NPC does things that cause the players to react or enjoy or participate or whatever. And it's very easy in your mind to think like they are an enigmatic stranger and the players are like, cool, we need two glass bottles. (laughs) Yep. And and so understanding or just even like, you know, like the guards at the gate, right. You know, they can just be there stoically, but better is when they say, you know, what brings you to town adventurer? And now they've got to answer that. And then you create, well, you know, like creating a dialogue and maintaining a dialogue with NPCs is a skill. There could be something here to help you with that. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, yep. Like for sure. Something that's really great is that the, the, the adventure hook often goes very poorly because it's an NPC are saying, go do this thing. And you're like, cool, I guess I'll go do it. But it's a lot better if you ask questions of the NPCs and it doesn't have to be just prove yourself. Why should I give you this quest? Because you're going to give them the quest. But asking things into the inside of the characters propels the story forward, right? I'm selling you winter gear. Tell me about the the most dangerous place you've been to, right? Get the players talking. Yep. Yeah. We get uh, a section on monsters as NPCs being told that the monsters can have all of these traits that we just talked about just like a typical humanoid NPC can. That's good advice. You're, mm-hmm. You don't want to overdo it uh, because sometimes a monster is a monster for a reason. And so you don't want to, if your players are new, to have the beholder who is an entity that has its own history be silly. Mm-hmm. At least I don't think so. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, you want them to, you want players to understand what these things are at their core before you play yeah. off those tropes. Right. Um, so you could do it a bit, but I, I hesitate, like I said, especially when I'm running for new players to, to go too far afield for something that already should have sort of its own personality in terms of its role in the history of the game. You know how I know that I don't look at this chapter yeah. often? Yeah. I look at the art and I'm like, I don't remember ever seeing this art in my life. <laughs> like that's how seldomly. And in fact, yeah. I was with a, a another person who I know works on a lot of official material. And I, they said, you know, like, I, I, oh, there was a, there was like a sort of like a rumor that there was new art being revealed for the 2024 DMG. And I'm like, I think that is in the current DMG. And that's what it turned out to be is that they just used existing art in like a press announcement or something. But it was not some revealed future art. Just nobody remembered that art existed in the DMG. 
that's funny. Uh, then we get told that NPC oh, NPC statistics, uh, NPCs can be given a stat block for a typical monster and then just reskinned, or NPCs can be built just like PC characters. Now, if you do that, and if it's something that the that the players are going to fight, you need to use Chapter Nine to determine the NPC's challenge rating. If you create one to be like a character. Mm-hmm. And we will get to all that when we cover chapter nine. Mm. So what about NPC party members? Yeah. So, I I mean, this is a part that I, uh, I I know well because I looked at it a lot when we were working on the ACK Inc. book, trying to think about what is the right way that people who are working in a company or adventuring group or something like that would, would get support and be able to, you know, rise in stature and have people doing things for them because that's what this section is sort of trying to to say through various types of npcs that you either bring into your party to adventure with or are pulling into to do different things with in some other capacity and so it talks about low level followers and adventure npcs and i i my guess is all of this will be vaporized and maybe they will bring in the um uh, what's the name of the system? Just escape my mind. Sidekicks. Sidekicks. Yes. Thank you. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we don't see that a whole lot, but we've seen it in some adventures. So maybe that will come in and replace this because it's probably a better system to use um, for how you can use that. Um, they do have a really interesting thing here. This optional rule loyalty that I think is not particularly wonderful. It uses a scale between zero to 20 based on the highest charisma score of all adventures in the party. And then anytime they do something bad to them, you take like 2d4 and, and reduce it by that amount, which to me is way too many bad things that you can do to somebody before they leave your employ. Uh, and what it also means yeah. is if you don't really do a lot, like if they're just like, say, doing your dishes at home, they will continue doing that until the end of time. Right? If you just don't do much with them, which is the reality of a lot of these kinds of things is they just exist there. So this loyalty score really only comes into play if you like give them a magic item and they get happy momentarily or you abuse them, in which case it doesn't adjust enough. Uh, like, this is a weird system. No, thank you. Yeah, the, the, the two things that I want to say about this is it doesn't talk about the phenomenon that we know as the DMPC. Mm-hmm the dungeon master player character. And I, a lot of groups do this, especially if they don't have a lot of players. The DM will have a player character who they will run as a regular player character. And it's totally fine to do if done well, but we do get the horror stories of you know, the DMs who make it all about their player character and the other player characters at the table sort of become second banana to this DM who is essentially, you know, playing the game for themselves rather than playing for the entire party. So it would have been good to say something about that uh, here, right? If you do, and and they do say, if you have a player character uh, that's with the party, that's a non-player character, you know, let, if, even if you run it, let them make decisions and let them, you know, it would have been good to spell that out and say, you don't want your non-player characters to overwhelm the story. Yeah. 
And there are a lot of, of ways uh, to yeah. advice you could give. Like um, when I ran the Ack Inc. adventure for my middle school group, there there is a character in there in the part that you wrote that is very memorable, you know, a sidekick uh, that could come along. And it was so one of the things I did is I said, well, OK, each session, a different player gets to run with them. And 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 you can play your interactions more closely because of that. And so it was neat to see over time, like some people would, you know, everybody would do their things and everybody liked this character. Uh, but but some people would really particularly lean into that relationship. And so then there would be closer relationships between them, which was neat. And I could use that in the storytelling. But it kept the action interesting and kept everybody having something fun to do. Right. And when it comes to loyalty scores, uh it's fine to gamify this, but as you say, if they do something horrible to a, a, a non-player character, shove them into the mouth of the dragon, and it's, oh, well, that's really bad. So that's 2d4. Oh, I rolled two ones, so that it only, <laughs> your score goes from a, you know, a 15 down to a 13. Uh, it seems like that would be something that the non-player character would just walk away yeah. at that point. So if you want to gamify it, fine. But if you gamify it, players will gamify it. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes the story would need to take precedence over the die roll. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> and then we get this section on contacts and patrons, which the contact section is just really brief. It doesn't do a whole lot about what they can do. And, and I think this is where you could have a more interesting discussion of campaigns where contacts make sense and what they can allow you to do similarly with patrons it's just a you know two paragraph piece here and we do have the patron system in eberron which then was revised slightly in xanathar's that's a really neat system of patronage where really you're working for an entity and i would guess that that's going to make it into the 2024 version of this and will be a, a lot stronger yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, I think that it was chapter one of Rising from the Last War. That's how strongly they yeah. believed in that mm-hmm. system, and it was really good. Uh, we get a section on hirelings, which, again, is very short, and it just basically says you can hire people to do some things. Uh, it makes makes me think back to AD&D, where charisma was basically used for two things and two things only. One was to get your instant reaction to someone, and the other was to see how long your hirelings would put up with you. Uh, so, you know, s- yeah. same thing here. It's more of a, generally more of a role playing thing. I would hope, you know, if if I could wave a magic wand, I would hope that wizards would read what we did in Act Inc. around how hirelings can be a big part of what you do through downtime, right? which I think was, there's a little bit of that in the core rules, but there isn't a lot of it. And we really leaned into that. And I think that's a system that could really work because often what players want to do is have agency in the world, right? And you see that as far back as like, oh, when you get to be a certain level cleric, you'll have a temple. Great, but what does that mean, right? And nobody knew what that should mean. And I think we now see enough examples, uh, including in the Ink book, that you could draw from to say, Players should have some ability to have agency in the world when they want it, right? They can set up a base of operations, hire a few people for relatively little coin, and have them do things for you, right? Execute downtime for you. Mm-hmm. 
And here's how to do that. And you could do that in a really simple manner. You don't have to go to the detail levels that are in the Ink book, but just, you know, have a method by which your hirelings can carry things out during the carry out downtime tasks is, is I think the easiest way to do it because you already have those tasks there, right? You can just play off of that. When I ran the Ack Inc. game, my players who are generally pretty hack and slash straightforward, send us to the dungeon, let us kill things and we'll come back. We're, we were spending two hours during a session managing the coin and managing what we were doing with uh, with these hirelings, what we were doing with these people. <laughs> you know, they sent one off to the Phoenix University of Waterdeep to learn m- magic better. You uh-huh. know, another one sent we sent them off to explore not to not a dangerous place, but to map out this other place that we might be interested in <laughs> to the point where when we finished the Ack Inc. campaign, they wanted to play a campaign where they played these hirelings who have now gone off on their own as adventurers. Yeah. If you had said that that would happen with this group, I would have said that will never happen in a million years. And it did. And it didn't take, you know, I, you specifically worked on those rules. Uh, and it, it, it was just, it, it worked out really, really well. Yeah. Uh, so I would too like to see that moving forward. And there's a lot that can happen uh, that, that is nice get, to have. Yeah your mind open to like um when i ran tomb of annihilation i did i had these sort of hirelings i was sort of play testing these rules as they're being written that are in Ink. but something that was fun was there was so much of the jungle we hadn't explored in in the in the jungles of cholt and so they ended up taking the b team as we called it which were the hirelings and the hirelings became we made np or character versions of them basically started with npc stat blocks and then made them into full-fledged characters so they could explore the rest of the storyline while we were in the tomb. And that was really nice because it changed mm-hmm. up that tenor. It wasn't just we're in the tomb forever. It was like, well, we're in the tomb a good amount. And now let's cut away to what the B team's doing. And, and it also let them tell different stories, right? So they, the B team focused a little more on the history of Chult and who gets to control it and, and getting the foreign powers out of there while the other group was saving the world. And that was really nice to be able to go back and forth that, through these systems, right? And the, the, yeah, there could like be that. a little bit to help that, I think, here. And, you know, you don't need an entire system for it, but just to be able to speak to that possibility that, hey, the hirelings you own can make for fun adventure. And I think it was um, Ben Richten's talked about that a little bit, right? And so pulling that in here would be really great. Mm-hmm. There's a very short section on extras saying there are other people in the world. And that is true. <laughs> you only need to highlight them when the characters need to call them out for some reason. And then 4E, we get a section on villains. And I was like, oh, yeah. That section comes right out of 4E. The extras, the allies, that kind of piece. It's, it's, it's all, it's yeah. funny. They just lift and move. Yep. Uh, then we get villains, and I thought, okay, here we go. We're going to get into villains. And it was really underwhelming. It it was just t- table after table after table of schemes and methods and secret weaknesses and, you know, motivations. And, and it's good. It's not bad that it's a bunch of tables, but it it's not like, here's how to tell a great story with a villain. Here's how villains work as game mechanics and as story mechanics, right? Uh, yeah, And it was just sort of, here's tables. Yeah. And it's okay to have these tables when you have something else that's helping you. Mm-hmm. And then this is the idea generation bit, but, but this is not the 
the thing, right? One does not just work through these tables and have a great story or a great villain even. It's more like you want to be working on concept of your villain, and then maybe these things help you when you're kind of hitting a wall is the way I'd look at this. But um, yeah, yeah. And the other thing is when you and roll the last these tables, things. and they should tell you this, both these tables and the ones on the NPCs, if you just roll on these tables, they won't necessarily make sense or create a, mm-hmm. uh, a cohesive thing. And so you'll actually end up with a bad result if you just roll on these things. You, you want to, even if you're rolling, you want to keep rolling until it gels and then sit back and look at the thing and go, is this really a person? <laughs> you know, do I really have a villain or do I have an amalgamation? Okay, let's redo. Right. Yeah. And the last two things we get are new domains, new subclasses for the bad guys mm-hmm. we get the death domain cleric and the oathbreaker paladin and of course as this was really the first splat book for fifth edition because as soon as these two things came out everyone wanted to play death domain clerics or oathbreaker paladins even even if the the they weren't the most powerful mm-hmm. uh subclasses people just wanted to because it was the new thing yeah. And what I want to highlight about these is how they are really made specifically to be villains, Mm. not just story-wise, but game mechanically. Mm. Um, The things that you want from a villain are to be, uh, to hit a lot and to be hit a lot, right? You want them to be dangerous but fall when they when it's their time in the story to fall. And that's what these domains and subclasses do. And as PC subclasses, they don't work for me as well mm-hmm. because of that. They're they're built in mind for a scene where they're very dangerous and then they fall. Mm-hmm. And to put them as player characters who don't fall, but who continually are able to do these things makes them very, very powerful. Uh, as somebody who's played a death cleric, because I got a special cert for Adventures League <laughs> in like year one of the campaign. Me too. Yeah, I agree. Uh, it's, yeah, this is all true. But also... So, like. You know, I was just going to say, also, the idea of creating a whole class for a villain, to me, this is too much, right? There's a reason that Forge of Foes, why we went with things like monster powers, because I don't know that you need all this to support the idea, these ideas and these concepts, right? It's a pretty heavy thing. It's fine. I know some people like to create a whole character sheet for their villain, but, you know, just say that you're... NPC stat block does this. This should be an NPC stat block because what happens is you get things like the Death's Cleric's uh, first level ability, which is Reaper. You learn a necromancy cantrip. When you attack with it, you can target two creatures instead of just one. When this book came out, there were only two necromancy cantrips. Mm -hmm. There was Chill Touch and there was uh, Spare the Dying. Mm-hmm. So unless you were going to need to get two characters up from 
you know, making <laughs> death saves, you were you were going to take chill touch. Now you can also take Toll the Dead with this, which is a big winner. Uh, so automatically too powerful. The 17th level improved Reaper is you can use a necromancy spell of first through fifth level uh, and basically twin it to to uh, affect two targets instead of one with necromancy spells of up to fifth level. Well, yeah, okay, we're going to do Raven Feeblement. That that's that's fine. That's understandable. That's what a bad guy would do. Mm-hmm. But twin revivify, <laughs> uh, right? Twin raise dead. It's a fifth level <laughs> spell that targets only one creature. So mm-hmm. I can get two uh, of my yeah. allies up uh, via revivify instead of just one. Right? It's not meant for that. Right. It's meant to to. to uh, so that's why things like that should be its own stat block for the bad guy rather than its own uh, mm-hmm. subclass. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, it even speaks and, and, to if you choose to allow a player you know, to have these and it's like, you should know better. <laughs> right. right. I mean, look, look at the Oathbreaker. One of the things they get is control undead. Uh-huh. So they can use a channel divinity to make a an undead creature a its servant. So you could have a fourth level paladin who's fighting a white, take control of the white. The white then when it kills something and it will kill something <laughs> if it's with the party can control a zombie uh, that it you know raise thing as a zombie that it kills and can have up to 12 zombies. So if it keeps failing its save with your channel divinity, it has you have to refresh it every 24 hours. Now, this of course is meant for someone to fight against, yeah. right? It's the paladin with the white servant, and that's it. But as a PC, now I'm like, well, I have this white who has 12 zombies with it who I can bring along with me everywhere I go. Just have to make that uh channel divinity roll at the start of the day, and we're good to go. It's a uh, special yeah so Mm. thoughts overall on chapter four i think it does a good job at being what this edition seems to want out of a dungeon master's guys which is inspiration provides a lot of inspiration and it's way better than some of the early editions that just give you almost nothing uh but it really does need more advice. And I think it's behind the times on, on what it could teach you about the game of being a DM and, and how you use NPCs for so many different ways in your game. And it, it doesn't speak to that, and it, and it should. It should, poss- mm-hmm. it should really recognize that, and hopefully the 2024 version does that. Yep, it's given, it's given the 2024 version lots of room to be an advice book and then refer back to this for inspiration so we are now done next time we will look at chapter five adventure environments but i want to thank everyone out there listening or watching we do appreciate your audience hood uh, and you keep us coming back for more and what really keeps us coming back for more are our patrons Uh, we have master of dungeon patrons and supporters thank you We have a special shout out to our Master of Realms uh, supporters in our show notes. And that list continues to grow and we very much appreciate it. But those Masters of the Multiverse, those patrons, they get a very special shout out 
on the show, including Graham Ward, James Walton, Joe Tyler, Krishna Simone, 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 say, Ross Sandberg, Chance Russo at Drago Russo, Post Fiction RPG Audio, Falcon Neal, Sean Molly, The Micro Ant, Eric Mengi, The Mathemagician, Chad Lynch, Travis Lee, Jim Klingler at DM Prime Mover, Brian King, Sean Hurst, Ben Heisler and Paige Lightman, Andy Edmonds at Neurodronomicon.com, Darren Chandler, Evil John, Merrick Blackman, Steve Bissonette, Craig Bailey, and Keith Amon of The Monsters Know What They're Doing. Thank you all for your support. And you, yes, you can become a patron of our show by going to patreon.com slash mastering DND. If you get a chance, you can also leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, you can subscribe to us via YouTube at our YouTube channel at uh, Bastering Dungeons YouTube channel. Whew. Heos, you, people find where? People find alphastream.com. No, alphastream.org. Don't go to alphastream.com. I don't even know what that is. No. Who knows? You don't want to know what that is. You don't want... <laughs> I don't want to know. But alphastream.org, you can find me there. Uh, my latest blog uh, is is up. Uh, and uh, there's another one on its way. What about you, Sean? Where do we find you? Uh, all the usual hangouts at Twitter at Sean Merwin, uh, podcast at Mastering D&D, Mastodon. Uh, the show is at Dice Camp, Dice.Camp, uh, obviously the Patreon and the YouTube channel. So we now know all about creating NPCs, even if we don't know exactly how to use them. So what are we going to do now? Well, we're going to open a portal to the multiverse, multiple portals to multiple multiverses. We're going to find NPCs that are actually me, and we're going to have them create all the things that I wish I had the time to create. Mm-hmm. At alphastream.com. <laughs> That's where you'll find them. Yeah. In, okay. in another universe, I got that URL, and it was great. That's that's good. Good. One of you is forward thinking. 